0: Peace Propaganda is a production of the Voluntary Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to furthering the understanding of the principles of non-aggression. Visit us at voluntaryinstitute.org. There are many who are uncomfortable with what we have created. Right planned communities the programming does this make me look bad
1: no it makes you look like a tool of government oppression but not bad the sterilized artfully balanced atmospheres they stand for everything we don't stand for also they told me you guys look like dorks if that's what we are we deserve to be the last of the free folk they hunger for an eden where spring comes
0: Yeah! Welcome back to Peace Propaganda, and Peace Propaganda, welcome back to you. Peace Propaganda is a show about the positive trends towards peace and liberty, and I am your host, Adam Elpo. Peace Propaganda is a production of the Voluntary Institute. Visit us at voluntaryinstitute.org. So, as I'm sure my regular listeners noticed, there was a bit of a conspicuous absent by yours truly, and that absence was caused by many things. Uh, a lot of things going on at the old homestead, uh, you know, just all kind of happened at the same time. Probably most notably, in fact, certainly most notably among them, is my recent engagement Yes, regular listeners will know that I've talked about having a liberal girlfriend for a while, so now I have a liberal fiance. <laughs> and I couldn't be more excited. I know that that strikes some people as difficult to believe. You know, me, Adam, so so passionate about, about freedom and, and liberty and the principles of, of anarchism. How is it that I could put up <laughs> so to speak how is it that I could put up with living with a liberal honestly it's not that bad in fact and 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 the not that bad part is only specifically relegated to when we talk about politics otherwise it's fantastic Um, it's no secret that we don't always agree on politics in fact we rarely agree on politics but that's okay because anyone who has taken the time to study anything or who I mean, yeah, anybody who's taken the time to study anything knows that you don't get better by retreading the same ground. You have to challenge yourself all the time, as much as possible. And what could be more challenging than living with someone, <laughs> challenging from a, from a political you know, spectrum point of view, that is, than living with someone who is, I wouldn't say we're opposites, but uh, definitely not running parallel tracks. Let's put it that way. And, you know, I would I would invite everyone listening to not maybe not necessarily, you know, make a make a spouse of someone who you disagree with strongly. But but don't push those people out of your life. I see too much of that being talked about in in liberty circles. You know, this idea that you should just you should just only talk to people who, who agree with you. And I don't think that's true. I don't th- I don't think you should beat your head against the wall trying to convince other people either. I think, you know, if somebody doesn't agree with you about politics, just don't talk about politics. You know, it, you're not going to convince everyone, as I'm sure all of you know. I, you know. And some people really drive themselves crazy trying and it's, just, it's not worth it. You know, th- like they say, you know, if, if if the enemy is our state, then as they say, the, the best revenge is living well. You can't let any of this that we're talking about here on the show consume you. You just can't. You have to, you have to go out and live your life, you know, still be passionate about these things, but don't let it control you because when you do, they have won. The state, the people who want to control your life, the people who think that you are their property, they have won. They, they can, they can already control what you do with your body, but they cannot control what you do with your mind. Only you can hand that victory to them. Don't do it. Today, we're going to be talking about the moon is a harsh mistress by Robert Heinlein. Uh, This is a book that came out in 1959, no 63, and it's a, it's a. ...widely considered to be a, a classic piece of science fiction literature by, by everyone, practically. This is not an overtly political book, but it does have themes. So this is not, this is not like a far-in-the-future you know, far Ayn Rand. Don't go into this expecting Atlas Shrugged. If you disliked Atlas Shrugged, don't let that turn this, turn you off to this book... If you loved Atlas Shrugged, don't expect that. They're not gonna be the same. They're not gonna not the same subject matter, not the same I would say, heavy-handedness that can be a, a little much in a lot of Ayn Rand's writings. Uh and and fundamentally different philosophies, too. Um parallel in that, you know, sort of there's a focus on on individual freedom and agency, but definitely um strikes a very different chord when it comes to uh, the ideas of centralization and, and you know, what, what constitutes an effective military, things like that. So what am I talking about here? The book is about a moon colony. And these, these people go out and it's, it's a prison colony originally. And, you know, much like uh, Australia, it sort of stops being that. And then they have to fight for their independence uh, against foreign colonial rulers. Uh, in this case, the foreign colonial rulers are the world government of Earth. So it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty stark. They set it up and, you know, there's just a one world government or at least it's implied that there is some kind of central agency controlling the moon. Um, and then v- compared to that is is the moon uh, people, the, the loonies, they call them, who, apart from this government that is imposed on them, seem to live basically a, a free market life. And the main character is, you know, repeats over and over that he's very apolitical and he kind of gets drawn into it in a, in a very realistic way that I think is is worth examining this. I this idea that we are going to you know, I know this sounds crazy me saying it, but this idea that that myself or anyone else out there is going to go and and just convince people that they need to abandon democracy and they need to abandon the state and they need to embrace this this philosophy of, of freedom uh, I don't know how to break it to you but that's unlikely <laughs> uh, this show and, and I would say most like it we are here to hone the ideas you know if you're listening to this show you already are on the right path or you're already there and and it's my job, and it's the job of the community involved in this show to help people along that path and to and to hone that thinking. But the idea that we're going to convince the masses, no, that's just not realistic. And I think this book does a really great job of of exploring how it is that someone who is a political, in fact, anti-political, um, in that he doesn't he doesn't ha- want to burden himself. The main character doesn't want to burden himself with learning about politics, which is, I think, how most people are. You know, it's, it's out of fashion to admit that, but I think really if, you know, think about the people around you in your life, and I don't mean the anarchists and the people who, you know, spend their free time reading Bastiat, I mean the average person in your life, how much time do they realistically spend learning about political economies? Yeah. Pretty, pretty negligible, right? And I'm not counting newspapers or, or, or blogs or Huffington Post or anything like that, because those don't teach you anything. Because if you, you go into reading a newspaper and you don't already have a base level of fundamental understanding of Austrian economics, you are hopeless. It's not, you're not going to stand a chance. You are just feeding yourself into a meat grinder of statism. And that's what this book really explores is the idea of how can someone like that, who has no interest in learning about politics, how is it that someone like that can get drawn into sort of an anarchist libertarian conception of the world? And it's a great thought experiment of so what happens, you know, this interplay of of centralized uh, power, trying to impose its will on the average person, how, how might they respond to that and how then in that moment of crisis can that person be shown a better way? So with that, I'm going to go to my interview today. I was joined uh, by Jeffrey Swan, whom I met, who's, who's a friend of the show. I met through Reddit and we had a nice conversation about what the implications of this book are. And don't let the age of the book put you off. Because as you will hear, it, it really deals with you know, timeless themes. Um, I just wanted to give this a little bit of background. Because I f- feel like we kind of really jump into the meat and potatoes of the book right away. So I want you to, to have a basic understanding of what the book's about. And I hope this book will be a launching pad for you. or Sorry, this interview will be a launching pad for you to go and read the book. Without further ado, here is my interview with Jeffrey Swan. Jeffrey Swan, thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me, man.
0: So we first interacted on Reddit, and you posted some interesting stuff about the the book in question today, which is Robert Heinlein's, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yes. Uh, Definitely an interesting book for anyone who hasn't yet read it. Um, It is, in fact, there is an old Cover of the book that describes the book as the as a libertarian revolution in the future. <laughs>
1: yeah, it says his his classic Hugo Award-winning novel of libertarian revolution.
0: Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so you obviously, you know, gravitated towards the book, as did I. Um, I haven't read it as recently as you did, so I'm hoping that you can fill in the, the gaps, but I know the the general themes of the book. Um so what in, what in your opinion makes this book libertarian
1: right okay um well for one I, i've only read it once and i'm kind of embarrassed to say that you know like david Friedman has talked about this book for a long time he said it was what pretty much made him an anarchist <laughs> um gave him the idea that a you know a society could exist without government um which is you know really interesting uh, right on the face of things um it's uh, it's definitely, there are definitely some things that are less than libertarian in the way that the revolution is achieved. Um, they engage in some censorship and some inflation and some other things, and, but they actually, uh, one of the, the, the professor is, actually says that, you know, yes, we're stealing to do this and I don't like it, but I don't see any other way. You know, my hope is that at some point this, you know, won't won't be necessary. Um and and it seems like, you know, toward the end, uh, you know, obviously there's lots of spoilers here, but toward the end the um there's almost uh, you know, in the last pages there's almost this sense that maybe it didn't succeed to the degree that they wanted it to. Like they created a government and the Yammerheads, as they called them for his name for politicians, the main character's name for politicians um, may have mucked things up more than he would like. And he says something about um, there being uh, some very inviting looking colonies or communities on asteroids. Um, So maybe, you know, and of course the book's written in 1966. So there's a lot that, it's actually amazingly applicable to today, i mean like yeah. his his foresight was just kind of ridiculous um, yeah it
0: was I was impressed by it. I remember be- it, considering how dated the book is on a technological level that he was able to really pick up on a lot of the trends, and it didn't it never struck me as totally out of touch with where technology is headed well uh, yeah, and it i mean it's you, it's written before the moon
1: landing even happened, right. So I mean and he talks about he talks about things which which I've thought about in terms of like you know people talk about going to meg a mission to mars or whatever and a, maybe a colony on mars and I've always wondered you know well does that mean like I've kind of figured it had to be a one way trip because of the difference in gravity and you know the the atrophy that would probably happen between here and mars and then you know it not be corrected on mars because mars is still less than earth's gravity and, and whether that, whether or not after generations that would produce different sized human beings that lived longer or did, you know, like, you know, I don't know, but he kind of touches on a lot of that. He, he says that, you know, people live decades longer on the moon um, because there's much less stress on their bodies. And when people have to come back to earth, it's only through lots of training and, uh, you know the fact that they are of a youthful enough age that it's possible for their bodies to withstand the stress anyway, and they're still pretty much condemned to a
0: wheelchair. Right. Uh, you know, um, yeah, he really he gets into the you know, the physics of, of interstellar travel a lot, which which was impressive. Um, as far as what you know, what makes the book libertarian? Um, there's definitely some some choice quotes in there. Uh, I think the professor himself. Uh, describes himself as an anarchist he the yes, term yes. that he takes for himself is a rational anarchist and, and he, uh, yeah
1: and he says that he would get along well with a randian um you know right. a, a randite sort of person um he uh there's i mean the whole thing is about throwing off governments and arbitrary rule and there's a there's a quote in there you know why would you why would you contract with somebody if he's not trustworthy? So it, it was criticizing people on Terra or Earth for having to
0: for having write laws up about contracts. Legal right? contracts, yeah. right.
1: Yeah, between people like, you know, why would you trade with them at all if they're not trustworthy? Does that doesn't that person have a reputation like Right. <laughs> you know, um
0: and at one and, point he asks he asks a hypothetical to a uh, a potential revolutionary Uh, which I think a lot of my listeners would would resonate with, he asks, this is like a litmus test that he's giving this potential revolutionary. He says, under what circumstances is it moral for a group to do that which is not moral for a member of that group to do alone? Uh, So basically the idea is, you know, can you or can you not shift moral blame? Is that something that can be delegated up to authority or are we ultimately... Or uh,
1: or like collectivized somehow. Yeah, I mean... Right it's it's just kind of a a we aren't you can't be more than than your individual parts in terms of of what is morally permissible um
0: Right ultimately he answers i have the quote here A rational anarchist believes that concepts such as state and society and government have no existence save physically exemplified in the acts of self-responsible individuals. He believes that it is impossible to shift blame, share blame, distribute blame, as blame, guilt, responsibility are matters taking place inside human beings singly and nowhere else.
1: Right. And and I think, like personally, I, I think that's the main problem with socialism or any sort of collectivism is that it you cannot a collective a collective is a derivative you it cannot to to put the collective ahead of the individual is to invert reality you you can't possibly have a collective that isn't made up of individuals so the individual has to come first if the individual doesn't come first then you're engaging you're engaging in something that's not sustainable like you're ultimately destroying you're whatever your policy is that puts the collective above the individual will ultimately destroy the collective in the long run. I mean, it's just the individual has to, it's what makes up the collective, you know?
0: Right. In fact, let's see here. There's something in here about taxes. Uh, I can't seem to find it immediately, but he says something about how uh, taxes are. uh, Here it is put the put your finger on the dilemma of all government and the reason I am an anarchist. The power to tax once conceded has no limits. It contains until it destroys. It may not be possible to do away with governments. Sometimes I think that government is an inescapable disease of human beings.
1: Yeah. yeah the, the desire for power over others sort of thing. Right. And, and a, the, the central one of the central themes to the whole book, which is probably the biggest thing that makes it a libertarian book, is the the tan staffel or ten staffel mm-hmm. is the the acronym is there's no such thing as the free lunch um and i mean that's repeated over and over you know there's no such thing as a free lunch like everything even if you're getting something for free it's paid for in some other way um and i looked that up it's actually it started in the 30s um or 20s or 30s there was apparently there were bars um that would Offer free lunch in order to encourage patrons to come buy beer um, or alcohol, and so people like it. People started saying, "You know, well, there's no such thing as a free lunch. The alcohols just cost more." Right. Um, but the, this book actually really popularized the phrase, hmm. um, is according to the Wikipedia article, apparently. So
0: interesting. Yeah. Well, well. Of course, the book was published in 1966, um, and you know, I've definitely I'm familiar with the idea of there's no such thing as a free lunch. So it wouldn't surprise me um, right. if it if not came from this, as you said, was popularized by this. Um, so when you when you messaged on on Reddit, you said, uh, "Where is it?" Something to the effect of, "Oh, in fact, I have it right here." Yeah, it's really amazing, uh, but it makes me think we need a more conscious effort to organize. Uh, what did what did you have in mind as far as organizing? And by we, I assume you mean we liberty minded well, anarchists. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: We's one of those terrible words, but oh, awesome. um, it, it, yeah. It just I don't know. I mean, there was there was a lot of unfortunately a lot of central planning sort of going on to make the revolution happen, and it seems like while we have certainly a lot of things technology is going to kind of drag us forward. I think Mm -hmm. you, you have a lot of, you know, Bitcoin, these, the right sort of distributed networks that allow people to share information and trade certainly get us a long way toward the goal of, of defunding or weakening the state. And, you know, in just a basic sense, um,
0: what because what people, process do you see at play that would that would begin to erode the state
1: well okay i mean there's no way a modern state like the united states can exist without the power to inflate money i mean if it were not for their ability to point guns at small oil nations and keep larger nations holding dollars uh, you know in order to trade for oil then they would not be able to export the amount of inflation and seize the amount of wealth from the global economy that they do like there's a just massive amount of of resources that they are reallocating toward their own ends that just could not happen without inflation um and i mean that's pretty much touched on in the book too um i mean pretty pretty heavily you know like reiterated um
0: so you're saying as the, as the um, cachet of the petrodollar loses its international prominence, so, so well, true right, does you, the ability of the, the Federal Reserve to inflate the money supply?
1: Yeah. I mean, if you've, got, if you've got all these cryptocurrencies that are doing nothing but gaining in value, then what incentive is there to save or hold or invest in a currency that is guaranteed losses year over year? I mean, you know, like as as cryptocurrencies just their very nature, it you know, as they continue to grow in acceptance, I mean, assuming they, you know, continue to exist and there's not some unseen weakness, you know, yet to be found, then it it seems to follow that at least that aspect of government control is eroding. Um so, you know, inflation being uh, eliminated as a sort of model for funding just changes the whole, it, it really fundamentally changes the game. It's a small thing, but it's one of those, you know, sensitive dependence on initial conditions kind of thing. Like, you know, like that, that millimeter of change in your golf swing changes, you know, like by a mile where the golf ball, go, you know, right. golf ball goes, like at some point it, it really changes the whole landscape.
0: But, um, no, that's true. I mean, the more that you can take away a, a government's ability to control the money supply, uh, definitely the, the freer people become. Uh, anybody who's familiar with the Renaissance, especially the Renaissance in Italy, with how they interplay with the Medicis and the money supply there, um, and the power struggles between the Medicis and the Pope and uh, and Rome, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of, there's a lot going on there, much of which centers around the fact that that the Medicis were so wealthy uh, and, and had such prominence in the region that they didn't have to uh, abide by by the, the banking policies that were right. trying to be imposed on them. So that the more that we can break away from the bank, bank, banking policies imposed upon us, uh, I think there's, there's a lot of historical precedent that suggests that that does increase freedom. So yeah, I would absolutely agree with that.
1: Right. And... So along with that, you have, I mean, the other, the other major aspect of, of government is pretty much like a religious aspect. It's, it's how people view authority. And the more there's a, there's a quote in the book that basically says, um, while one of the characters, a female character in the book, um, and her comrades had tried to push the patriotism button and gotten nowhere um, loonies, the the people on on the moon, and I mean, okay, and I should point out that this is a this is a prison colony on the moon, which is, you know, Australia was a lot of the people, the population of Australia was part of a a prison colony at one point. Mm-hmm. I think Georgia, the state in, in the United States, was like had a prison colony in it. So like, basically, anywhere colonists, you know, it was harsher environments and they just kind of banished people to these places. And strangely enough, that produced, I mean, cause a lot of that was probably, a lot of the banishment was probably done by control freaks and Puritans and whatever, you know, right? like, so, so it, in, these places ended up being more libertarian um, and, and sort of a, a source of a lot of, of uh, positive change. Um, and, you know, but in the in the book, um, her they're trying to use patriotism as a way to motivate people, and it doesn't work because the loonies are not they're not patriotic. This sort of like, and that's the same problem in in today is that libertarianism libertarianism is sort of a process of overcoming patriotism in my mind. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I certainly felt like I had to overcome it to get to my understanding of the world. Um, And the professor in the book um, says it's easier to get people to hate than to get them to love, which is it's kind of unfortunate, but it's probably true. And it, I think that illustrates why things have to get worse before they get better is that the government has to become oppressive enough that even the people who think government is necessary are really unhappy mm-hmm. and looking for some answer or want to change, you know, or trying to, to successfully change things.
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I think I wouldn't have necessarily, I mean, he did it for literary effect, so I won't fault him, but I don't necessarily think it's true to say it's, it, you know, it has to be hate or love. It seems like he's setting up a false dichotomy. Yeah, that, that could be. Um, and the idea that government has to get more oppressive, I see that as one potential scenario that would drive people away from the religion of state, uh, but also just any way that it can, it can stop functioning uh, well enough for people. So, for example, um, the collapse of Social Security isn't necessarily an oppressive move, uh, but it does seem likely and and if something like that were to happen, if the social security checks, uh, in, you know, twenty thirty years from now or whatever, do stop coming, I see that as a as a catalyst for crisis.
1: Well, and see, I think it's probably less likely that they'll stop coming, and more likely that they just won't be worth anything. Right. And and right. And and so, I mean, it's sort of an ineb- an inev- uh, inevitable that the state becomes more oppressive just be- by its nature. Right. I mean, like it's it's a it seeks total control like it it just constantly is marching forward with little with little you know efforts here and there to to grab another another thing another you know Mm. another piece of an industry or whatever so i mean it's just kind of the nature of a of any organization funded by force that it wants to do more things that Increase its ability right. to force thi- people you know force things on people.
0: Right. and unfortunately, that's a very difficult thing to convince people of, which is why this idea of making people love liberty is such a such a difficult task, just because, like you said, it's, it's easier to get people to hate something, or at least, uh, as I might rephrase it less poetically, it's it's much easier f- for people to become disenchanted with something or for people to to see how something is failing them. Yeah. Than it is to for them to imagine an entirely different world uh, built on entirely different principles. The well, idea, you know, to get them to love liberty enough to go through the thought experiments, to to read the literature, to understand the history, is not an option.
1: Right. Well, and and because things happen so slowly, too. I mean, and you have political, you know, I mean you have politicians that are aware that slow change is there, <laughs> is what works for them. Like, I mean, whether they consciously are trying to, I mean, I don't think any of them are consciously trying to make things worse, but they think that, I mean, there is certainly an the idea that things need to be worse, need to get worse before they get better in terms of political policy is completely accepted because you have, like there are recordings of Obama saying that we need to, you know, we're not gonna get a single payer system all at once, right? Like he, you know, early on before his, you know, first presidential run, he went on a number of shows and said, We're not gonna get single payer all at once. We need to we need a, a multi stage progress you know, process where we we basically make healthcare more expensive and harder to get access to and more cumbersome in order to create demand to nationalize the system. And so I mean there is a conscious effort. He just thinks that a nationalized system would be better. I mean, in the end it's it's a horrible like like hubris, I think, you know, but but it's it's weird how con like how much they can be conscious of like how they're going about it, and then how much they're still like not uh, how much ignorance there is still in the process like it it's not a conscious conspiracy to destroy. It's a conscious conspiracy. To achieve some impossible thing so it's a conspiracy of ignorance as Ayn Rand would say Um,
0: And a lot of it is just built on superstition and you know this the idea of Vox Populi Vox Dei You know the voice of the people is the voice of God and this this blind (laughs) this blind trust that if we just um, You know believe in the power of democracy believe in the power of representative government Uh, And if you believe this thing will be good,
1: it will be good. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: And whatever twists and turns it may take and however ugly it may seem, it's all for, you know, this the arc of history bends towards justice uh, mumbo jumbo, which, of course, a cursory glance of history shows is absolutely not the case. (laughs) And, And in fact, there have been, you know, spans of hundreds of years where people who have lived in in far worse conditions than they had before that. Um, So I think, unfortunately, a lot of it is based on this misreading of history that, you know, things just tend to get better. And if we if we keep going along and not making too many waves, then, you know, presumably it'll just get just get better and better. It it never really gets worse (laughs) is how people seem to think about it.
1: Well, okay. so I'm not sure we really we haven't really summarized the book properly. So why don't let's let's say like. Basically, it's a book of libertarian revolution, and it's pretty much libertarian because they say over and over that you know there's no free lunch, and they, there's you know the collective is not greater than you know the individual, and and it's you know it, it's I mean it's it's pretty obviously libertarian in its right. in its writing.
0: Even the structure uh, of the revolution is oh yeah almost yeah. entirely decentralized.
1: Well. It, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that that's something that's interesting. Um, but okay, so so basically, they 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 have a there is a central supercomputer that Earth installed on the moon to to sort of manage all of the things in the colony, and the supercomputer
0: comes wakes, alive. Yeah. Yes,
1: it wakes up. Um, and Manny is uh, our main character is pretty much the only one who notices um and the computer says he's a not stupid and (laughs) and that he would like to talk to other not stupids but then most people are stupid um so um manny and and what's something that i didn't really catch the when i read through but i went back and read a summary to make sure i didn't miss anything and which i sort of did is that the computer which he calls mike the computer's name is um Mycroft. Uh, yes, Mycroft. It's it's actually, actually no. Mycroft is what Manny. It's the name that Manny gave him. Right. The, the computer is a is Holmes. It's High Operational Logical Multi-Evaluating Supervisor. Um, it's he a Holmes Four um computer, and he was uh, put there for ballistics and. Pilotless freighters and controlled their catapult, which is a, how they ship. Um, it's basically a big railgun. It's how they how they ship uh, wheat and stuff back to Earth. the Things they they grow and produce on the moon. Um, and they kept hooking hardware into him until um, he basically became um, more than you know just a computer. Um, and he was programmed that the high high operational part is he was basically programmed to have some sort of free will and make decisions based on very limited information. Um, and so, you know, the idea is that if you combine that sort of programming with enough neural network, you know, enough complexity that you essentially get something that is, you know, alive,
0: so to speak. Right. And so, um, and so of course the main characters are, they organize a resistance against the the imposed authority on the moon, which is right. sort of a, like a puppet government controlled from Earth. Right. Uh, very reminiscent, of course, of the American Revolution and, and many other uh, colonial revolutions throughout history. This idea of, you know, we're geographically separate, yet we are being ruled uh, from, you know, whatever home country or, you know, we may originally be from. In this case, it's the home planet um, really ruling over the moon. And they just... They're they get mad as hell and they don't take it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um,
1: and it actually, Mike. Something that interests me is that right after, like, right the second chapter, uh, Mike he he calls him Mycroft Holmes because Mycroft was the the older brother of Sherlock Holmes. And in the beginning of the book, which I don't know if this was, I don't know if this was meant to communicate. Something, or he he basically, he says, Mike was not official name. And if you, there's a lot of broken English because Manny is, you know, on this, has grown up on this prison planet. I mean, like, a couple generations in, they're not actually prisoners anymore. They're just people that were born on a prison planet. Um, And, but the English is broken, you know, because essentially in the future, it's more just, Less formal and you know more about communication and there's been a bunch of
0: right. less they, than they educated people a, ship a there. A dialect, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so he, uh, Mike, was not official name. So he calls him Mike. He said I had named him from Mycroft Holmes in a story written by Doctor Watson before he founded IBM. And Sherlock Holmes did not was not written by Doctor Watson. And Doctor Watson actually didn't found IBM. It uh, the company was founded by, um, uh, mm, well, I don't know, I can I don't have it written. Charles Flint,
0: there
1: you go. Um, and then Thomas J. Watson actually was the CEO that carried IBM to to great mm. fortune, so to speak. And so he was more famous. So, but I wonder if that was put. I mean, in 1966, that probably had to be. Fairly common knowledge that that was not, you know, the correct, especially in somebody who has the right the understanding of computers and things that that Heinlein obviously does. Um, so so he's, I think he's suggesting here that history has been sort of rewritten by popular opinion, and you know, English is broken, and you know, like like right at the beginning of the book, he's sort of setting up a world where you know people are imperfect and this is the mess you kind of get out of this, you Uh know? Um, and that's sort of like a quiet joke there that, you know, that, that this, I mean, Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. And now, you know, everybody thinks that Watson both (laughs) ran this company and, (laughs) and was, you know, the author of a a popular story.
0: Um, so I, we, I got to wrap up here. I got a, I got a dog barking like crazy outside. Oh no, we already,
1: I, I did not get to,
0: I didn't realize how short our time would be. Oh, okay. That's okay. Well, what else did you have? Did you have something else that you wanted to bring up?
1: Um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I could probably go on for a while. Um, <laughs> um, the in terms of planning, um, you know, they create they create a, a an artificial character, um, Adam uh, Celine, that is is totally fabricated to sort of head up their revolutionary organization, which, you know, to me seems very analogous to like, you know, Satoshi or, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. They created a false identity to, to sort of head this thing. And then Adam Sling is actually like as a person, a voice and a, a, like visual person is actually created by the computer to give somebody to, you know, like to, to give the, the idea that he's actually real. Mm-hmm. Um, And they also create um, these fake, you know, the Simon Jester is sort of like the John Galt of there's this this sort of devious version of, you know, like, where is John Galt? They have little poems and things that are critical, you know, political cartoons that are critical of the administration. And it's always signed Simon Jester with little horns and, you know, like a little smiling devil. And, you know, that like, I mean... I'm kind of surprised that there isn't somebody doing that already today. I mean, we have similar things with the sort of taxation theft meme and you know, there's there's lots of libertarian memes, obviously. Right. Um but but it's interesting that that's, you know, was an important part of of sowing, you know, discontent with everything. And yeah. they rewrite songs of revolution um not enough
0: the, not enough artists in the movement. I would agree yeah, with that. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, and, and it's something that a lot of people talk about, but it just it's really it is really unfortunate like we we need <laughs> we need some more people to to I mean and it the way they do it is they rewrite a bunch of songs of revol- like old songs and then the ones that are successful they promote so it seems like you know that's a pretty good starting point for you know anybody that wanted to do something like this right um and I mean if you could do it, if you could do it decently you have a massive community that wants you know <laughs> it clearly wants this sort of thing. I mean, like if I, if I could find a good revolutionary song, I mean, you know, and you have like, you know, the crypto show plays a handful of songs that are, that are pretty revolutionary in nature. There's a lot of places. I mean, you, uh, the school sucks podcast. There's a lot of songs out there that sort of fit. It's just, there's nothing today that is as specific as it could be. There's, right. or there's very little. Um, but you know, at the end, it's interesting because Mike, his first request is that the main character go to this revolution, this political, I mean, this, uh, protest, this political protest. And then at the end, Mike somehow is the, the personality is somehow destroyed at the end, but it's left open that, you know, he even says that he thinks he hears Mike whisper to him every now and then. But then when he calls his name, there's no answer. Um, you know, it was this some sort of, was this actually some sort of uh, uh, self preservation thing where, where this supercomputer actually created a personality in order to, I mean, they project, he projects somewhere in there that like seven or eight years, the moon colonies will, will resort to cannibalism and food right. riots and things. So, so maybe this computer has projected that, okay, things are going to get bad if I don't do something. So I need to, you know, move these people to action and is that, and then he disappears at the end because he knows that it's, there's no good that can come from a centralized authority of that sort, which is mentioned a bunch of times in the story too. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, is that like, is the book then, you know, like overall, I mean, maybe it's a stretch. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but is the book like a call to action for, that people who understand what could happen if something good doesn't happen, you know, yeah. like, do we need to? Is that a call for you know people who are aware of what's going on to to really try and make some change? So
0: yeah, I think it is. I think that's uh, I, it was a good way to end the book. You know, sort of ambiguous, um, but definitely, I think it was a call to action, um, and I think that's uh, that's a very good teaser for the audience. Uh, sure. To go out and, <laughs> and read this book because it is excellent. It is um, it's very, very although, good. Although written in 1966, I would say the language is very modern. Um, it's, it's a very approachable book. Um, and obviously it has a lot of themes and characters that uh, a lot of a lot of the audience here would would re- really resonate with.
1: Yeah, it's it is. It's very enjoyable.
0: Uh, and and it's just good sci-fi outside of that. Yeah. It's not like a book that's trying to beat you over the head with some kind of ideology. It's really not. No, it's, uh, it's, it's it's extremely all,
1: plausible.
0: It's extremely
1: right. like, I mean, and that's what makes a good sci-fi to me anyway. It's something that you can, it gives you something to think about. And it's not, there's no dead ends, really. Right. It, it's There's a lot of, you know, interesting questions and nothing that's glaringly Horrible <laughs>
0: <laughs> well if if people want to get a hold of you, uh, I understand the best way is to find you on Facebook um, yeah,
1: just Jeffrey course. Swan on Facebook. um I think I've got a probably a Bitcoin thing in my as my facebook background um I'm in Washington, North Carolina, so it, it, probably the only Jeffrey Swan there
0: <laughs> there you go, well, definitely search for Jeffrey on there, you know we here at peace propaganda uh in addition to the primary goal of of uh furthering the understanding of the non-aggression principle uh i to me part and parcel with part and parcel with that is getting people together unifying this movement bringing bringing all the liberty lovers that we can uh together and and just get everybody talking because i think the more that we communicate with each other and stop trying to bang our head against the wall of of trying to convert statists and actually can talk to each other and formulate a, a good plan, a good set of ideas. Uh, I think that's going to be a much more mentally healthy for everyone involved and, and be much more effective. So definitely reach out to Jeffrey. Uh, of, of course, you can always reach out to me here at the show. Uh, just email me at voluntaryinstitute@gmail.com. At gmail.com. And thanks again for listening. And Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man.
1: Through the dark and I'm floating in the most peculiar way And the stars look very different